Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context. With myself, Ali Ansari, and my longtime colleague, Suzanne Rain, uh, we were talking about can we escape history last time, and I think we're going to be continuing that today, are we not, Suzanne? We certainly are, Ali. But um, can I move us on to a new topic, yes. which is um, learning the lessons from history. Ah, I knew you were going to come here. Yeah. Well, you know, do we learn them or not? There's so many different angles for this. Mm. Obviously, it's an enormous topic. But I was prompted reading Katja Hoyer's article in the Financial Times Weekend a week or two ago about Germany's memory of the two world wars and how that affects the choices that the German leadership make now. And she wrote, where the victorious powers see purpose in suffering, most Germans see only senseless slaughter and guilt. And you have this sort of German collective conviction that armed conflict is inherently futile. And if you contrast that with the position particularly of the UK and and Central and Eastern Europe and the Baltic states in response to Russia's war on Ukraine, you can see how that if you have a narrative about the First and Second World War, which is that you are the plucky underdog who's been attacked, whose brave soldiers have fought off the aggressor, it's a lot simpler to motivate your population or to to decide to act when you see the Ukrainians behaving in a way that you identify with. And her argument is that is one of the reasons why it's so hard in Germany to sort of get over that because essentially their narrative about the war is obviously completely different. So then you've got this question of is history a motivator for acting or is it in some instances, of course, an inhibitor for action, something which explains not acting? And then I was thinking, Ali, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a bit, but that made me think, as so many things do, of Tony Blair's Chicago speech. The Chicago in, um, speech, yeah, yeah. The Chicago speech in um, 1999, where Tony Blair outlined the doctrine of, of liberal intervention. And he was basically saying it had been very strongly informed by the failure to act in a series of critical moments in the wars that happened with the collapse of Yugoslavia. And yeah. so, I mean, just there's a couple of phrases I was going to read, and then we sure. can talk about the consequences of that. So, so he and Bill Clinton, I think, took from their observations of the 1990s the, the horrors of not acting. And so he said, no one in the West who has seen what is happening in Kosovo can doubt that NATO's military action is justified. Anyone who has seen the tear-stained faces of the hundreds of thousands of refugees streaming across the border heard their heart-rending tales of cruelty or contemplated the unknown fates of those left behind, knows that Bismarck was wrong when he said the Balkans were not worth the bones of one Pomeranian grenadier. And then and then later on in the speech, he says, many of our problems have been caused by two dangerous and ruthless men, Saddam Hussein and Slobodan Milosevic. Both have been prepared to wage vicious campaigns against sections of their own community As a result of these destructive policies, both have brought calamity on their own peoples. Instead of enjoying its oil wealth, Iraq has been reduced to poverty with political life stultified through fear. 
Milosevic took over a substantial, ethnically diverse state, well-placed to take advantage of new economic opportunities, but his drive for, you know, so you can see where you're going with this. And if you read the Chicago speech, you can see absolutely how Tony Blair's thoughts on what to do about Iraq were shaped by what lessons you could draw from failure to intervene in, in Yugoslavia. And then you fast forward to 2013 and the British Parliament had a vote about what to do about use of chemical weapons in Syria. And the suggestion was, you know, there had been, the West had a red line, which was use of chemical weapons on the civilian population. It was clearly crossed. And David Cameron went to the UK Houses of Parliament to seek authority for military action against Bashar al-Assad and his forces, which had conducted those attacks. And the British Parliament voted against military action. And you can argue exactly that that was a result of learning the lesson of the last time they'd done military act, well, uh, both in Iraq and actually subsequently in Libya. They said, it clearly doesn't work. We mustn't make those mistakes again. So, so you then get this sort of flip over of no action. And the consequences of no action ended up, I mean, you know, complicatedly, but you then had... Russian intervention, buildup of Russian power, Russian conclusions that the West wasn't going to take any action because they didn't, you know, red lines were crossed and no one did anything. So, so this is a kind of cycle, isn't there, of learning the lessons from history and then learning them again. And now we're sort of, <laughs> we're working through the next phase of that cycle where we're now learning that uh, you can't stop a war just by being nice to people, I think, is is the current phase that we're in. No, I mean, I think I think it's absolutely, and, and I mean, it it's so pertinent and relevant to this debate about lessons because i i think the examples you've just highlighted there are perfect for sort of just you know showing how i mean i don't want to say we learn we learn the wrong lessons but we we learn very short-term lessons i mean it's like the last we're always haunted by the last immediate experience that we've had and we're not actually taking a suitably longer term perspective on what's going on. I mean, I was very struck also. I mean, the Chicago speech, as, as you quite rightly say, was enormously influential in laying out this route for liberal interventionism. But I wonder also how much, you know, the memory of the Falklands War influenced the way in which the Blair administration also approached, you know, what it considered to be short, sharp, you know, wars that, you know, could reverberate quite well politically. I mean, this is the thing. You know, to what extent does politics get involved? And then, of course, the Iraq War is taking this whole, you know, liberal interventionism to a, a absurd degree, if I can put it that way. I mean, because it just simply wasn't well. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, and I, you know, certainly wasn't well thought out. You know, in terms of, of the outcomes, I know there are some who would disagree. Um, I don't think you would, but uh, there, there was. Um, you know, it, it seemed to be at the time, I remember, you know, always saying to people, what's the exit strategy? What's the exit strategy? And nobody seemed to have any idea. And of course, the idea was, well, nobody would tell you, i.e. me, which is fair enough. But it seemed to be they didn't tell anyone. So, I mean, as it turned out, things worked out. But then, of course, the fatigue of Iraq. I mean, this is the interesting thing. You're quite right. You know, the sort of fatigue of the Middle East and Iraq led to, you know, debacles like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, last year. Or was it two years ago now? Um, Year and a half. A year and a half ago now, isn't it? God, time does travel. Um, and that, you know, I mean, is you know, you can see now. Actually, the next time if we do get involved in any place, nobody's going to withdraw like that again, you know, because it was such a fiasco. But the reason why that withdrawal occurred is because 
presumably, you know, there were those in America saying never again, never again, the, the sooner we can get out of these places, the better, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier without thinking through the consequences of what that might uh, result in. And of course, the consequences have been quite disastrous in many ways, particularly for the people of Afghanistan. Mm. And similarly, withdrawal from Iraq, of course, which yes, um, yes, which yes, you know, after which uh, not very many years passed before the announcement of the caliphate. So, in that sense, and the Iranians, of course, consolidated their position, and mm. then of course you have the caliphate, you get ISIS. You're absolutely mm. right, and then of course you know the whole Syrian debacle allowed both mm. again the Russians and the Iranians to sort of extend their hold in, into that area, and it's all, I mean. To go back to to Nietzsche, I'm sorry to say, he says there are no lessons to be learned from history. Um, you know, let's I was just it. thinking that. I yeah, was just there are thinking no that. lessons. The last five minutes discussion illustrates to me that it's very difficult to work out what, what the lessons. But I see. Are. I think. I think, and and this is where and I'm going to make a plea for this, and and I, and I suppose arguing in you know what, what's fascinating to me is if you look back um, to Foreign Office handbooks and, and and sort of training manuals, if I can put it that way, you know, from the early part of the 20th century, they say very clearly there that history is one of the key elements that diplomats and others need to learn. Yeah. It, it's, it's part of the curriculum. Now, it goes back to an argument of what sort of history, you know, fine, I'm, you know, that, that detail needs to be sort of thrashed out. But nonetheless, I found it fascinating to see that it was seen as part of the sort of the armament of a statesman if you will a diplomatic statesman where that they should be historically literate and i think you know one of the reasons why we don't learn the lessons is because fundamentally there is a historical illiteracy i mean i i, I think that is the problem and we are too ready to absorb and digest and accept accept you know very basic narratives and so because that that lack of nuance, and, and and in some ways, by the way, I think that's been driven also by politics, of course, and the immediacy of politics. Everyone has very short-term politics, and everyone has a short-term horizon, and they want to result very quickly, and therefore they're not willing to take uh, long, you know, decisions that have longer-term consequences, or may not yield the result they want until some time in the future, you know. Or you just have a very simple historical objective, which is which is what you yes. could say of Russia, which yes. is. I have my historic objective. And the difficulty is when you're trying to do something more complicated, I suppose, like, you know, intervene in a Middle Eastern country ostensibly in order to remove a dictator who's suppressing his people. But can I just can I just stop you there? Can I just stop you yeah. and just say so you say Russia has a very simple history, and that's true. But haven't they also, in their own view, that 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 simple objective is their objective? They've completely misunderstood the, the Ukrainian. Narrative, yes. haven't they? And and now yes. got bogged down. Yes. And and the German, you know, the German aspect that I thought was very interesting that you were outlining earlier. Um, I mean, of course, the Ukrainian response to the Germans is well, you know, what are you worried about, you know, in terms of a military incursion to Russia? Actually, the vast majority of the casualties occurred in the Ukraine or something. I mean, you know, you did a lot of damage to us too, you know, in the Second World War. It was the Ukrainians that took the brunt. Mm. I mean, a lot of the fighting took place there. So you know, in a sense, you're compensating by helping us, if I if I can put it that way. Yes, and it's. I mean, it's. I do think that one of the things, one of the kind of weird things that this war by Russia on Ukraine has done is it has made us all much more conscious of our own 
history, all of us, all of us in Europe, mm. much more conscious of our I think our you're own absolutely history. right on that. And that kind of row about, you know, who's a Nazi now, um, I find extraordinary. You know, the Ukrainians are Nazis, the Russians are Nazis. You know, actually, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's a historical term that they're all using. You yes. know, they don't, have a, they don't have a current term to define what they're talking about. They're using a historical term. And I saw, I don't know whether you saw um, over the last couple of weeks, the Russian response to the German suggestion that they're going to send the Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine mm. has been entirely couched in the language of the of the Second World War. You know, yes. Like, and they're sending their tanks to us again, you know, um, which is, again, it's, it's, it's history, but, you know, in a way, it's time for everyone else to stand up and say, um, it, it's all a little bit more complicated than that, That's it right. seems to me. Um, that so so learning lessons from history uh, what are we concluding we're concluding that um you should learn them but you can't <laughs> is that what well no i mean i i think i think like any like any almost like technical exercise you need a degree of technical expertise in order to engage with this in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and i i don't think you know there are no i think the best way is to say there are no simple lessons of history i mean it's 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 that sort of you know one has to be a little bit more nuanced about what's going on. I mean, it's uh, there needs to be an understanding. I feel very strongly that Britain, in a sense, should be engaging more uh, with historical narratives and not just leave the field clear. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, is it's completely upended some of the debates in this country. I mean, you know, up until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, you still and you still have it, of course. I mean, we've seen some rather famous musicians talk about it to some extent. Um, you know, who sort of said, oh, well, the Russians had just cause, you know, they've been oppressed, you know, they've been oppressed by the West, they've been oppressed by NATO, they've been oppressed, so on and so forth. And then suddenly you see the brutality of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and people are now beginning to reflect back and saying, well, maybe actually, you know, the British or the American, you know, the British, I mean, after all, it was the British and the Americans who said the intelligence was showing certain things, and everyone else sort of denied it, didn't they? I mean, we've been through this before in an earlier podcast where, you know, the British and the Americans were saying, you know, we have fairly hard evidence that the Russians are about to invade. And, you know, everyone else saying, well, you know, because of Give Iraq, them the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. Yeah. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, what's interesting is because that's actually happened, uh, I do wonder whether it's now, you know, that pendulum, in a sense, is beginning to swing back a bit. And people are saying, well, maybe, you know, the British narrative is not entirely wrong. Mm. You know, I mean, maybe that's something that would be quite interesting mm. that uh, – uh, people will reflect upon that's you know we're, heaven forbid that we should get a situation where people are uncritically receptive of various stuff that comes out of you know an official orthodox history we would never want that obviously and it would be very dull but at the same time maybe we should be a little bit more uh, not so cynical as to chuck the baby out with the bathwater is basically what i'm saying to to paraphrase butterfield i can't remember if i said this on one of our earlier conversations ali so, if, so forgive me if i did mm. but I had a conversation with somebody who, let's say, was French, who said, mm-hmm. well, of course we didn't believe you when you said that Russia was going to invade Ukraine because you were wrong about Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. That's right. And I find that extraordinarily frustrating because, of course, the question about whether or not weapons of mass destruction existed yeah, you said was, they were two different types of intelligence. It's a factual one. Yeah, it's yeah. a factual one. He's got them or he hasn't. The question yeah. about what Russia's going to do is a question of intent. So we had this 
I mean, his, this is history thwarting everything, and it's a lack of understanding of history and a lack of understanding of uh, insight. That so a French position which says let's not believe the Americans and the Brits because nearly twenty years ago they were wrong about something, which is completely different anyway. So therefore, we're not going to take this seriously now. I think is. I would like to say I think it's a tragedy for Europe that we didn't take it seriously earlier and and that's a part of it but that was totally influenced by remembering or remembrances whatever the word is of of a mistake in the past so not learning or learning a lesson but it, learning the lesson having a negative consequence yeah no absolutely and I and I mean you did mention it we did we did discuss yeah, it sorry. earlier and I think I think no no absolutely no it's it's worth reiterating I mean it is worth reiterating because I think again it's a very good example of you know learning the wrong lesson because you're actually comparing apples and pears aren't you? I mean, that that's what you're basically doing from an intelligence point of view. But I think also, you know, you can reflect that in historical points. I mean, people are basically, they're not comparing the right thing they're, and, they're, and they're taking things out. You know, there's a there's a, a, a basket of fruit and you're just selecting the particular bits of fruit that you like because it suits your palate at the particular time. But you're leaving out all the rest of it, which might contradict what, what yeah. the, the conclusion you want. And again, it goes back, I suppose, you know, ultimately to Butterfield's notion of the teleology of Whig history, you know, that we're we want a conclusion, you know, I want to, I don't know, invade Iraq. Therefore, I must now find the evidence to support that, that what I'm going to do. Or I want to invade Ukraine. Therefore, I must find. But it's not actually looking at the historical record with any sense of impartiality or any sense of objectivity, even if that were possible. And also, just to be clear, that they're not necessarily completely the same things, but let's <laughs> stop. Yeah. Let's not get into that right now, Ali. Um, I'm going to move us on to another topic, and maybe this will be our final topic, which um, which I'm going to surprise you with because we haven't discussed this, which is okay. a place in history. Ooh. So what, what do we know or what can we say about how that notion of a place in history drives the thinking of our leaders, our politicians, our revolutionaries you know and how as their as their life evolves as they get deeper and deeper in, do you think it becomes more and more important to them so if you're you know if you're putin now i mean you're in acutely con what we're saying is that if history was this massive motivator towards mm. invading ukraine in the first place and you you talked about it earlier a little bit what effect is history now having in terms of the psychologies, and I mean, this is a massive question, Ali, and I'm sorry, I'm not expecting you to answer it at all. But I mean, are you are you thinking about a, a, a sort of sense of, you know, what are they going to write about me? No, I think no, I'm thinking individuals. Um, oh, individuals. So, so okay. Why okay. do you be, why do you choose to become leader of a country? <laughs> I mean, is it? Oh, <laughs> it's well. a massive question. Sorry, but. But a part of that has to be at a certain point, you know, you're a prime minister or you're a president or you're, you know, running the European Union. You must be thinking about how your story is going to look when they write the history of that. And if you well, are... Well, one would hope. I mean, I have to say one would hope. I think some recent leaders have uh, rather shameless in their... Uh... Uh, in, in in their aspirations of political office and, and what their legacy might be. But 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. See, if you've got, if you're, I in wonder. A I wonder if they do think of that. I wonder if they do. Do you I think they, they do? Must do. Well, if you're in a democracy, right. you've got a problem because yeah. there is the historical record. Right. So sure. if you're Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, there'll be mm. minutes of all the meetings uh, where there'll be records of decisions taken or not taken. And in a set amount of years, 30 or 50, however many, they'll be the files will be opened up at the Public Records Office and historians will pour over them and piece together, probably imperfectly, because the record won't be perfect, what happened when the critical decisions were taken, who made that fundamental intervention that changed everything. That's all going to be there. And so I think, yes, I think as they are part of an unfolding set of events, which they know are going to be, you know, kind of epochal, world-defining mm, events, mm. I think they are thinking, I have to demonstrate leadership, I have to do something, I have to be the one who people remember as being a new sort of Boris Johnson example. But um, Well, he's a very good I think, example. But I think it must, I mean, it must be, yeah, I agree with you country. actually. I mean, I think, I think it, I, I think, as they say, the ha we all feel the hand of history on our shoulder. Yeah. I, I think that there's a, I think definitely there's a sense of their, their position in history. I mean, you see this with American presidents and the curation of their presidential libraries, and and uh, you know, it's obviously a very important part of their legacy. You're absolutely right. Um, I don't doubt that any prime minister in the United Kingdom has a sort of sense of you know how they will be perceived. But I suppose I'm interested in. I suppose the detail is how they, you know, I think they 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 do want to have a, a sort of a positive historical legacy, but I often wonder whether they themselves have an understanding of the of the historical nature of the office that they hold. Let me put it that way, and how they fit in that. You know, I always I, I always remember, you know, when 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 Margaret Thatcher was just leader of the Conservative Party and she was standing for election seventy eight, she gives an interview, and you know they're sort of asking her. Uh, she was. She may have been, no. She may have just become leader of the Conservative Party, and they ask her, you know, something like, um, you know, how do you feel or whatever, and she just recites this list of previous leaders of the Conservative Party. You know, I mean, for her, it's like I am the heir of this great tradition, and it's quite interesting in terms of where she sees herself. If you were to move to Boris, for instance, Boris Johnson, I do wonder whether he saw himself in a rather grander, you know tapestry in a sense uh because of his classical training in some ways you know i mean he, he clearly had a, a historical perspective i think he clearly wanted a legacy but he, he also wasn't as far as i can see and I'm, i mean obviously i may be completely wrong here but it seemed to be that he wasn't a detailed person i mean he didn't saw he saw the grand strategy he didn't see the the, the tactical nature of it all i don't know whether i'm going in the maybe i'm going in the wrong direction here i don't know but i i sort of feel their understanding of history obviously shapes the way they they see themselves in it and it's not you know again it, it all depends on really how historically literate they are but i think what i'm saying is that it would be an unusual thing in human terms not to be crafting the story of your leadership yes. while you're doing it. While you're know? doing it, yeah. And because and, and, everybody's constantly thinking, who are, you know, who am I? What's my purpose? What do people think about me? And 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 Putin's an extreme example because you've got yes. this kind of, you know, not a czar, but czar figure who is rebuilding Russian pride, who's going to be 
Vladimir the Great, you can see. That's what he's aiming for. And and that, of course, creates a whole set of dynamics that that we also need to to build in. You know, the, the, the concept of your role in a historical event must affect the way that you go about playing your role in it, I suppose. Well, I suppose, I mean, the interesting thing is, I suppose autocrats also uh, tend to have much grandiose and grander sense of where they're... So, you know, the Shah had this sort of... The last Shah in Iran had this sort of identification with Cyrus the Great. Saddam Hussein obviously thought he was Nebuchadnezzar or something mm. or other, or rebuilding Babylon. Putin thinks that he's the heir of, you know, imperial Russia. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, I can see how that begins to shape. Goodness knows what, I mean, US presidents or or um, or UK prime ministers see themselves as. Interestingly, I think probably the more modest you are in your ambitions, the more successful you're probably likely to be. I mean, in the, you know, I mean, in in the sense that if you have a more modest, I mean, interestingly, if you have a more modest sense of where your place is in history, uh, the chances are you may have a much more profound role in in in, in that historical uh, and legacy than, I mean, certainly those who have had much much more grandiose. Although historically speaking, I'm quite wrong here. Of course, historically speaking, there have been you know, uh, great kings and leaders who have had vastly inflated aspirations and have achieved them, uh, you know, I mean, so it is possible. And I suppose, yes, it does It does give you a sense of purpose, whether it's right or wrong, but it does give you a sense of purpose. You sort of see yourself as a historical figure. Well, they are historical figures, and you just, you yeah. just are a historical yeah. figure by dint of being a political leader, in a yeah. way. And, and that's not just for, you know, the the prime or the president, but also political leaders, you know, in any role, really. And I was just, I was reflecting, though, that you get the sort of positive aspect of that, which is I'm a leader, what kind of leader do I want to be? What's my grand legacy? But there's also um, a sense in which this then drives, if you take the current war that Russia is waging, this must drive calculations about what happens next. Because you don't want to be the leader who loses. Yeah, so so true. this question about uh, you know how the war is going to end, there is a psychological aspect of that, which is for Putin, you know, he's he's going to double down because he can't be the great Tsar Vladimir the Great, whatever, who's made a colossal mistake. And, that, and lost yeah, all that's the really territory. interesting. Yeah, that's really I mean, I remember talking to Fiona Hill, you know, the analyst yeah. on 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 Russia. And she said, I think to me that Putin had four busts. I think yes. when she she went in, and, and I mean, I, I have to remember who they were. I mean, obviously Peter the Great, Ivan, um, one of the Ivans, I, one of the Ivans, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great. I think it was Catherine the. No, it's Alexander, Alexander mm -hmm. the First, who beat Napoleon. But then the the really weird one uh, was Nicholas the First, who lo who lost the Crimean War. I mean, I, I so I wasn't quite sure where that goes but again that's interesting i mean again that's the psychology and i think you're quite right if he sees himself as the heir of these four um you know where does he see himself in that you know in that historical inheritance and i yeah i think that that's that's really interesting i mean i think it's really interesting in terms of the psychology of leadership actually and and, and how they see themselves i mean there's a good half dozen leaders you could say that all have a napoleon syndrome so uh that's uh you know <laughs> i think so. i i think i fear that we're running the risk of just um making up psychology here which is i know we ought to my, be careful we ought to be careful my intention at all but yeah. my intention was really to to sort of make the observation that um 
in geopolitics, yeah, uh, that consciousness of individuals of themselves as actors taking decisions which are going to be judged in historically, history, yeah, is obvious and present, and it's present even in kind of immediate stuff where you see them giving an account of why they took the decisions that they did. If you see David Cameron giving an account of why he went to Parliament in 2013 to seek their agreement yeah. to take action against Bashar al-Assad. You know, so so already they're thinking, what what is the story that's being told of me? If the story is that I failed to do something which had negative consequences, how can I explain myself? And I do just think, you know, there is clearly a case to be made that an element of this is about psychology. And I think that that notion of a place in history has a has a role and not necessarily a helpful one in terms of driving decisions that are taken. I, I won't go any further than that. No, no. I mean, I I think you're right. I mean, we could go into some very dodgy ground here, but uh, I don't want um, to go into dodgy dangerous ground. ground. But let's not. I want to suggest not, but... that somebody else who knows about psychology thinks about that some more. Mm, mm, no, I agree with you there. <laughs> I agree with you there. Lots of food for thought, Suzanne. I think lots of food for thought. So, Ali, um, I think we're going to stop here because uh, we have exhausted ourselves on the subject of can we escape history? And we're very much hoping that we can escape history, but not by forgetting history. Is so right? I would is say we can't escape history, Suzanne, okay. is what I would say. We just need to engage with it better. But no, I agree. I mean, it's an ongoing debate, isn't it? As uh, Peter Peter Guile, I think, said, the Dutch historian, that history is a never-ending argument, and it looks like we are also engaged in a never-ending argument. But that's uh, – I don't, I, I don't want to sound too um, – too morose, actually. That sounds a little bit negative. No, I think it's all... That does sound, but, but maybe you and I are engaged in a never-ending argument. never-ending argument, so yeah. Let's, that's been, but let's that's been good. So I hope, I hope you've enjoyed listening to us as much as Suzanne and I have enjoyed talking to each other. But um, we'll be back uh, next time with uh, another with topic some guests. of geopolitical significance. And some guests. And some guests. I think some guests, Ali. I think we've had enough yeah, of us Yeah, definitely. Now. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Goodbye. Bye.